Well, thank you, Evan. It's uh, the joy and the, the pleasure is, is sincerely ours. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you. I've heard so much about uh, this church and then finally seeing, um, seeing you and uh, it's, it's wonderful. I'm taking my phone out not because I want to check my texts, um, but because I want to make sure that I don't finish my talk at the end of the second service. Um, which is all, which is always possible. Um, now that was a lovely in- introduction. Thank you. Uh, and I don't want to start on a negative note, um, but you, you missed something very important that was that. Well, no, that was no. It's important, it, and it's it's a health and safety notice. And I can't believe, as a responsible church leader, you didn't give this health and safety notice. And that is this. Um, for your health and safety, chocolate is not allowed in this room. If you have bought chocolate into this room, you need to bring it to me now for safekeeping. I know some of you have got chocolate. Apples do not count. We're not having apples. Okay, if you're going to play it like that, the ministry time is going to be tough. I just, um, (laughs) I just want to, I just want to begin by saying I've been a pastor since the days of Noah. And uh, as a pastor, um, I've gone regularly to pastor's conferences. And what happens at pastor's conferences is at some stage, it's the same thing every time, they they get to give the keynote speech, a pastor of a really successful church that is huge, that is massive. And uh, the, the, the talk is always the same, whatever, whoever the pastor is. And it goes something like this. If you want to have a church as big and successful as mine, you've got to follow these three practices, these four ways, these, these, five, these five plans and, and, and he says, three months ago, there were 47 in our church. Now there are 3.2 million. And we have planted congregations on Mars and Venus. And our budget is bigger than the state of, state of Texas. And I used to go and I used to make notes about the, the three principles, the four practices, the five ways. And I would go home and I would change everything in my church and cause a complete chaos And then I'd go to the next pastor's conference and there'd be another successful pastor and he would say uh, three different principles, four different practices, five different ways. And I'd go back to my church and I'd change that. And after a while, my church started praying for protection for when I went to these pastor's conferences because they were exhausted changing all the time. And then there was one time I went to a pastor's conference, and one of the pastors of a a big, successful, shiny church, he said, here's the secret. If you want to grow a big church, a successful church, then what you've got to do is you've got to go out and find the best of the best, the best people, and then you pay whatever you need to pay and you hire them. And when you've hired the best of the best, then you will grow a big church. 
And I thought, that's a great idea. Because what I've got is rubbish. I need to hire the best of the best. And then I thought, oh no, but I haven't got enough money. And I thought, I'll have to find the money. And then after a while, it suddenly occurred to me, poor Jesus, poor Jesus. He didn't have anyone to give him that advice. He had no one to tell him to go and buy the best of the best. He had no public relation. What are you doing? Are you taking my photo? Come here. Come here. Go stand there. Go stand there. Wait. Okay. If we're going to do it, we may as well do it right. And what was I saying before? This poor Jesus. He poor Jesus. He didn't have anyone to give him such great advice. And in those days, when all the are we having an air raid or something? Um, on on those days. Uh, when all the top rabbis, when they were looking for new disciples, they would go to the top rabbinical universities. They would go to the Harvard, the Yale, the Port Lo- Point Loma, uni- I need to call it Port Loma, Point Loma universities, and they would hire the best of the best. That's what the top rabbis did, except one, except Rabbi Jesus. And he didn't go to the top rabbinical universities. He went to the Sea of Galilee and he picked 12 morons. (laughs) He did, he did. Have you ever studied them? You know, there was Peter who whenever he opened his mouth, he put his foot in it. He could never quite get it right. He was always too impulsive and and there was one occasion when he by accident, I think, gave the right answer. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Pete somehow gets it right. And Jesus is so shocked and so excited. He says, you are rocky. (laughs) And on your confession, I will build my church. And I imagine Pete going around saying, did you hear that? I'm rocky. (laughs) I'm rocky. And then almost the very next thing that happens is Jesus tells them that he's going to die on the cross and Pete says, oh, no, I don't want you to do that, Jesus. No, no, don't do that. And then Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. He was rocky for a few minutes, and then he was Satan. That's Peter. Then there was Simon, who was a zealot. And, you know, zealots fought against the occupying Roman power for freedom for Israel. In other words, he was a terrorist. Then there was Matthew, who was a tax collector. That doesn't mean a civil servant. It means he was a traitor to Israel. He, he sided with the occupying Roman power. Can you imagine the conversations between Simon, the zealot terrorist freedom fighter, and Matthew, the traitor tax collector, late at night after Jesus went to bed? 
Then there was Thomas, who couldn't believe anything anyone ever said. He was the manic depressive of the group. I mean, it was like, oh, it's all gone wrong again. Oh, I knew it would go wrong. It always goes wrong. Oh, I, I, we may as well go and die with him. I mean, let's all go and die. Oh, I, I'm not going to believe he rose from the dead unless I put my finger here and, and my whole hand in there. No, no, it's all gone horribly wrong. And, I mean, there's one in every church, isn't there? They drain the life out of you. Oh, I don't like this. Oh, let's not do that again. And, and he would just moan and groan and groan and moan. And, and do you know, I love it that that, that, that after Jesus rose from the dead, this is funny, I, I enjoy this, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, on the first day he rose from the dead, on the day he appeared to Mary Magdalene, and then he appeared to all the other disciples, but Tom wasn't there. And then Thomas arrives later, and they tell him that Jesus is risen from the dead, and he says, no, he hasn't. And they say, he has, we've seen him. And he says something like, now, you see, I'm reading deeply into the text here, okay, in a way that other top theologians don't. And so, and so, and so, and so Thomas, um, Thomas says, no, he's not risen from the dead. You're having a group hallucination. I did, I did psychology at college. I know, you, you so want him to have risen from the dead that you all believe he has, and he wouldn't believe them. And, and do you know what Jesus does? He appears to them all on the first day, and then he leaves it a whole week before he appears to Thomas. I always wondered, what, why did you leave it a week? And can you imagine, on the Monday, Thomas is saying, so, where is he then? Anyone seen him? Ha, ah, told you, told you. Tuesday, oh gosh, so do you still believe he rose? Oh, where is he? Is he coming for dinner? No. By Friday, I think probably the others were just a little bit starting to think, did we hallucinate? Is there something wrong with us? And then the following Sunday, Jesus appears to Tom and he says, hello. <laughs> just like that, he says, hello. And he says, and he says, put your finger there. Put your fist in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Why did he leave it a week? I don't know for sure. We'll find out when we get to heaven. I don't know about you, but I've got loads of questions I've got for when I get to heaven. And, and probably when I get to heaven, I'll be so mesmerized that I'll have forgotten them all. But I've got them now. And one of them is, why did you leave it a week, Jesus? And I suspect it was because he just wanted Thomas to really go through all his doubts and for them all to be laid out, and then he would appear. And do you know what happened? When Jesus appeared to him, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. In the whole Bible, we believe that the Bible teaches that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's not one proof text that says that. And there's, there's, there's no other place that really says that Jesus is God, with the possible exception of the beginning of John chapter 1. But Thomas is the only person whose lips say, Jesus, you are God. I love that. The guy with the biggest doubts ended up being the person who made the greatest confession of faith. 
That's what God is like. But that's Thomas. But the ones I, 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 one I really want to concentrate on is John. And he and his brother James, the story is fantastic. And um, uh, John and his brother James, they were nicknamed Sons of Thunder. Not because they had digestive problems, uh, but almost certainly because they had bad tempers. They were nicknamed the bad-tempered ones. And you can see if you read the stories in the Gospels um, that they indeed um, had, had bad tempers. And John was a nightmare. Three things. First of all, in Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going to die a gruesome death on the cross and then he's going to rise from the dead. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked, possibly thinking in his humanity that they might say, we love you so much, we don't want you to die. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. You know, their, their sole thing was, after you've died and rose from the dead, we want to have the most important places, selfish ambition. And when the other disciples found out, there was a big argument. There was dissension. Selfish ambition always causes division in the church. The bad-tempered ones were also selfishly ambitious. Second, I'm going to run through this very quickly. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And we read this, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, don't you sometimes wish the book was a DVD? Don't you? I do. I do, because it just says Jesus turned and rebuked them. Just listen to what happens. Um, they're on their way. Jesus sends a couple of his disciples into the Samaritan village to ask for a cup of tea or something like that, because they would have been English disciples. And, and, and then the Samaritans say, no, we're not, we not going to give you a cup of tea. And then John and his brother James say, Lord, why don't we call down fire and burn them all up? And it just says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. It doesn't say what he said. I wonder if it was something like this. Hey, boys, come here. I knew you weren't listening at the Sermon on the Mount, were you? You were on Instagram, weren't you? I could tell you weren't listening to when I said, um, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. If someone hits you on one cheek, turn the other. I didn't come to burn down Samaritan villages. I came so that Samaritan villages wouldn't have to be burned. He turned and rebuked them. John and his brother James, the bad-tempered ones, were selfishly ambitious, were vengefully violent. That was vengeful violence. And then finally with John, and I love this, in John chapter 20, we discover 
that the culmination of human history has happened, the central point. Jesus has just risen from the dead. All of Scripture is leading up to this point. And John, in his gospel, announces it. He lets us know that Jesus has risen from the dead. Listen to how he does it. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And by the way, he's talking about himself here. (laughs) Yes, I'm the one Jesus loves, don't you know? Um, And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple, i.e. me, John, started running for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, me, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is the central point in human history. We've got the announcement. They're just discovering Jesus has risen from the dead. And at this point... John thought it was absolutely vital that future generations should know that he could do the 100 meters faster than Peter. (laughs) It's like, John, who cares? Who cares? Jesus has risen from the dead. That's the point. And it gets even worse when you read John's last words in his gospel. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So, John, you're telling us that you left things out that Jesus said and did that we will never now know about. But we, it was still vital that you should tell us that you could run faster than Peter. John who had a bad temper, was selfishly ambitious, was vengefully violent, was also excessively competitive. Would you have him in your church? I wouldn't. Jesus chose him. He chose him. He picked him. He went to the Sea of Galilee and he said, Hey, you, bad-tempered one, selfishly ambitious one, vengefully violent one, excessively competitive one, you, yeah, you, come, follow me. I'm going to commit myself to you. I'm going to pour myself into you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to wash your feet, and I'm going to go for it until I go to the cross, and my love is going to form you and my love is going to change you and that is exactly what happened over the next three and a half years after three and a half years with Jesus the one who had the label over him the one who thought of himself as the bad-tempered one a son of thunder he gave himself as you heard a new label the one he loves the beloved disciple. And this guy, uh, I know it was John the Elder that wrote um, the, the letters of John, uh, but 
ev just about every theologian believes that John the Elder was a disciple of John the Apostle. And there are so many similarities between John's gospel and uh, certainly the first letter of John, it's remarkable. And I think we can assume that it was John's voice. And this guy says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, for he who loves knows God, for God is love. And John ended, at the end of his life, he was known as the apostle of love, as the apostle of love. You see, Jesus didn't see just who he was on the outside. Jesus saw who he could become. Jesus saw the potential and he chose him. Just like he chose me and just like he chose you. Just a quick story, and this is true. Um, in 1955, um, there was a lady um, who lived in Kansas, in the state of Kansas, called Elizabeth Henson. And she was clearing out stuff from her wardrobe. And amongst her clothes, there was this horrible, bright green velvet dress. And it was ugly, and it was old, and it was fraying, and it was dirty. And, it, yeah, and she thought, why have I kept this? This is ugly. This is useless. I will throw it out. And she went to throw it out, and her son saw her. And he said, if you're throwing that out, can I have it? And she said, why on earth would you want this? This is useless. This is ugly. This is worthless. And he said, I want it. So she gave it to him. He took it to his room. He cut it up. He sewed it back together. He got a table tennis ball, cut it in two, and sewed the two halves of the table tennis ball onto this horrible, ugly green dress. Do you know what happened to that dress? It won an Oscar. It had a hit record that went all around the world. It had a TV series that lasted for decades. And most important of all, it had a celebrity love affair with the most gorgeous, sexy pig on the planet, in the hands of Elizabeth Henson's son, Jim, that ugly green dress became Kermit the Frog. Because Jim Henson could see what it could become, what he could make of it, and he crafted, and he molded, and look what happened, even more. Jesus, when he chose his disciples, he saw what they could be. And he poured himself into them. And he invested into them. You see, Jesus didn't choose the best of the best. Jesus didn't choose um, the, 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 the brightest. There's nothing wrong with being good. There's nothing wrong with being bright. There's nothing wrong with being good looking. If there was, I wouldn't have got in. There's nothing wrong with being a fashion icon. Another reason I wouldn't have got in. But it's not on that basis. It is not on that basis. He sees what we can be. And he loves to choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He loves to choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
And one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians when the Lord says to Paul, my grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Do you know what that means? It means his power is not made perfect in our strength. Because in our strength, we rely on our strength. But when we come to the end of ourselves and in our weakness, we begin to rely on God. When we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. And that's the place miracles happen. In our dependency, in, in a world that's full of independence, dependency is the secret, is the secret to ministry. Dependency, authenticity, vulnerability, they're the, they're the key phrases, I believe, for the coming years for the Church of Jesus. I, 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 everywhere I go, I think people are getting tired. Christians are getting tired of the show, of the spectacular, uh, of the performance. And folk everywhere are longing for reality. They're longing for community. They're longing for a place they can belong. They're longing for a place where their brokenness can be acknowledged and they don't have to hide it. In a world where we put our, where we put our best images on Instagram, where no one tweets, I've had an average day today. In that world, loneliness is the great epidemic in our world today. It really is. Uh, the, the mayor of Watford, our town, the elected mayor of Watford, came to visit our church a while ago. And my colleague, I wasn't there, and my colleague asked him, he said, you're the mayor of Watford, uh, what would you say is the greatest problem in our town? And without hesitation, our mayor said, the great number one problem, loneliness. Number two, car parking. <laughs> And car parking is awful in our town. And everywhere, folk are longing for authentic community. And that happens when we acknowledge our weakness and we discover that we are totally accepted by him in the place of our brokenness and therefore by one another. Therefore by one another. I just want to tell you maybe a couple of stories and then we're going to land and we're going to ask Jesus uh, to, to meet with us very soon. In our church, we have, um, we have recovery groups uh, for folk who are recovering from alcohol addiction, drug addiction, gambling, etc., as many churches do. And uh, one Sunday morning before uh, our morning uh, service, uh, one of the leaders of one of the recovery groups came to me and she said, I want you to know um, that Joyce, uh, in our recovery group, today is the first anniversary that she is alcohol and drug free. And she told me just as the service was starting, which was a mistake, because I'm spontaneous and I don't have time to put things through the grill of my, my mind sometimes. So in the notices, I said, in our church, we celebrate people's successes. Joyce, why don't you stand up? She stood up slowly. And I said, I want you to know, today is the first anniversary that Joyce is alcohol and drug free. 
the whole place erupted in shouts and cheers and applause that went on and on and on. And I watched her face as she stood there and she heard her church family cheering her achievement. And here's the amazing thing that only Jesus can do. The following Wednesday, I had an email from another lady in our church and she said, you're not gonna believe this. On Sunday morning, I brought to church for the very first time my stepsister, um, and she'd never been to church before, and she is seven months free of alcohol abuse. And when you said that about Joyce, my stepsister turned to me in tears, and she said, is that what you do in your church for people like me? You celebrate people like me. And when I heard that, I wanted to shout, yes, that's exactly what we flipping do. We celebrate people like you because we're all broken, because we've all got stuff. It's just that some of us are much better at hiding it. And that's the truth. And what the world is looking for is a church that will love and serve and be honest and open and, and, and fight for one another and come to a place of healing. By this will everyone know you're my disciples if you love one another. What has this got to do with the ministry of the Spirit? Some of you must be asking. The answer I want to suggest is obvious. The Holy Spirit comes to those who know they need, to those who know that they can't do it without him, to those who know that unless he empowers, they are powerless. For those who have realized that their best efforts amount to nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Doesn't mean you, it means what you do amounts to nothing. He comes to the thirsty. He comes to the hungry. He comes to those who are broken. I have a friend um, called Ants, Anthony. He lives in New Zealand. And he's told me a couple of stories, and I finish with this. I know I said last time I was finishing with that, but I was lying then. I'm, I'm telling the truth now. And, um, and um, my friend Ants, he's got this little girl, and he's always got stories. You know how some parents, they don't shut up about their kids? It drives you nuts. It's like, I don't care. They're not my kids. Will you stop? I don't want to see another photo. I don't, want to, I don't want to hear another story. Well, he's one of those. It's always, oh, my little girl, my little girl, my little girl. Well, anyway, um, his, one of his stories is he said, um, um, he said, are you one of those parents? <laughs> oh, that's, they're all looking at you and laughing. And, and he, he, said, um, uh, he said that one day his little girl, she said, Daddy, can we build a fire together? And he said, okay. And they went out into, we call it a garden, you call it a yard, yeah? Into the yard, um, which for us is a measurement. Um, so I'll, I'll teach you English and say garden. And um, he, they went into the garden and they got these logs and they got these little sticks and, and they put it all together and they put some paper underneath. And then he got a match and he, he helped his daughter to light the match. And then she knelt right in front of the little flame and she went like this. She went, 
And Ant said, my friend said, more water went on the flame than air. But she kept doing this. But after a while, it started to take. And the flame lit. And it became, after a while, a, a great fire. And she turned to her daddy and she said, Daddy, did you see what I did? Did you see what I did? I started that fire all on my own. And her daddy said, your daddy is so proud of you. You did start that fire all on your own. You're a wonderful little girl. And she was like this. But what she didn't know is that while she was going, her father was kneeling behind her. And he was going, That, my friends, is how it works. That's how it works. The best we can do is But he is behind us. And he goes And that's where the miracles happen. And miracles are just things that we could never do. One last story. And then... No, 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 I said two. I did say two. I, I, did, I did say two. Goodness sakes. I hope the second service is better than this one. I'm a t- I mean, you said to me earlier, you much prefer the second service. You, you know, I mean, didn't you? you? You said and you said that they're much better looking. And I mean, I can't believe you'd say that. A pastor would say that. About, <laughs> you see, church split. <laughs> I might come over and pastor this one. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's a joke. It's a joke. I'm staying in Watford. Um, 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 My friend Ants tells another story, I told you, and he said one day, um, first of all, his little girl, when she was about six, her favorite toy was a a china doll, a porcelain doll, which is crazy because little girls, they, they like things that they press and they cry and they're soft and cuddly and things like that. But she liked this china doll and they kept it on the mantelpiece for safety and they bring it down. Uh, every evening before she went to bed, she'd stroke the dolly, she'd kiss the dolly, she'd talk to the dolly. They put the doll back and she would go to bed. One day, father and daughter were having a pillow fight and it got really competitive. And they went from room to room and eventually they ended up in the front room. And somehow his little girl got under his defences and she gave him an uppercut with her pillow. And he was cross because he thought, I'm not going to let a six-year-old beat me in a pillow fight. So he thought, right, I'm going to finish this with one whack. I'm going to give her such a, such a hit, I'll send her into orbit. And he pulled his pillow back, but he pulled it too far back, and it hit the China doll. And the China doll started to shake. And then he said the next bit, it felt like it was in slow motion. The doll fell and father and daughter went, no. And the doll smashed onto the ground in hundreds of pieces. They stood there, her eyes wide. She said to her daddy, you've killed my dolly. You've killed my dolly. And he was mortified. He said, darling, I'm so sorry. I've got a credit card. I'll buy you another one. And she said, but daddy, I don't want another one. I only want this one. And so he picked up the pieces, he took them to his study, he bought super glue, he spent the whole of the next day trying to put the doll together, and he used all the right pieces, but not necessarily in the right order. And 
and eventually he finished the doll and the doll looked like this. And he took the doll out to his little girl and he said, look, here's your doll. I'm so sorry, darling. I'll buy you another one. She looked at him and she said, but daddy, I don't want another one. I've already told you. I only want this one. And he said, but darling, this one's broken. And she said, just because she's broken doesn't mean I can't love her. And that's my message. Just because some of you feel broken doesn't mean he can't love you and doesn't mean he can't use you and doesn't mean he can't take you. You may think you're useless. You may think you're dirty. You may think you're like that green coat. But he takes us and he blows. He blows his life. That's what the gift of the Spirit is about. More than anything else, it's having more of Jesus. It's knowing more of Jesus. It's living in the presence more of Jesus. That's it. Tonight, we're going to get really practical. All right, we're going to look really practically at how we do that. But I just thought, rather than give you a technical talk on the Holy Spirit, I just, I know I need my appetite whetted so that, so that I long, so that I long. What we're going to do now is um, we're just going to wait for him. Um, and we're not going to have the Holy Spirit keyboard playing in the background, setting the mood music. We're not going to dim the lights. I'm not going to start talking in my hushed, sexy voice. Uh, we're not going to set the scene. Oh, I have one, you know, I do. I'm, uh, uh, um, um, you know, we're just going to wait for him. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to see what he does. And if he does more, we stay here longer, and the 10.30 can just flipping wait. And, and if, he, if, he, if he does less, then we go home early. <laughs> Except I don't, because I've got to stay. Um, you see, we're not going to hype anything up. We're just going to wait and see what he does. I just invite you to be open. No one needs to pray out loud. No one needs to sing or dance or fly or anything. Just relax in the paddock. Just receive. We need to learn how to wait. Okay? And Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you move in this place? Holy Spirit, would you move among us? Holy Spirit, would you equip your church? Lord, meet those of us who feel broken in our brokenness. Those of us who live with secret shame, petrified that anyone might find out. Lord, would you meet with us in that place? Those of us who feel that life's been a struggle. And even those of us who have, who have done really well and yet are afraid that we might not be able to keep it up. Jesus, breathe on us as you did the first disciples. We wait for you now. And we're just going to wait. Just wait. Don't be afraid of the silence.